a Highline podcast. Welcome to Ravel, a roundtable show about how faith gets complex with the vast amount of information at our fingertips. For some people, this complexity has caused the unraveling of their faith, and for other people, it's been liberating. Take us, for example. I'm Stephen. I'm Josh. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of the American Christian spectrum, and as some of our beliefs migrate, we still feel like our theology is in process. Theology always has fundamentally been, and will always be, an exploratory dialogue. That alone is proof that faith raveling doesn't have to be a crisis, even if it feels like it. We don't have all the answers, so we want to use this show to model what it can look like to genuinely sort through beliefs in real time. So share a drink with us as we pull on the thread of our own pressing questions. Thanks for listening. Hey, what up, friends? Yo, yo, yo. Hey, 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 hey. Back at it again with the Ravel Pod. Yeah. Love it. What are y'all drinking today? I've got two drinks before me. I have made an iced AeroPress uh, over some ice that was redundant. Uh, it is an Ethiopian coffee from, uh, the name on the bag was Dur Freyes, but I don't know if that's a region or a town. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's very tasty. And then I'm also drinking my last beer from our friend Tyler from Finley Brewing Company. I'm drinking oh. the Paradoxical sessionable mm. porter mm. which actually i wonder if that's i'll have to ask him i wonder if that's like a specific style of porter like because i know that there's some beers that are called like session beers yeah right oh. i don't know what that refers to but it's very nice it's almost like a little cola e isn't it it's so cool it has like those deep chocolatey porter notes but then that like kind of bitter orange like mm-hmm. orange rind yeah. kind of flavor i loved that one yeah, it's good. Nicely concocted. Honestly, this would make a really good beer float. Some ice cream. Ooh. Oh. That sounds delightful. It's rare to find. So I'm a weirdo, and it's 95 degrees, and I'm drinking hot chocolate. Because <laughs> it just sounded, what? it sounded really good. I, re- I haven't had hot chocolate in a really long time, and I know Alex's office is just down the hall, so went in and I made myself a hot chocolate from his office and it's very delightful on Mm. this very hot day. (laughs) Mm. Is there AC there though? Oh yes. Oh yes. Okay Mm -hmm. that's fine. I'll allow it. And I have the tiny cute little marshmallows in there just to kind of add some joy. Well I am also enjoying a crisp pint of an IPA. It's called the the Specific Void IPA in collaboration with Fremont Brewing from Seattle and the burial beer company. And I sent you guys a short video of this on the text thread because it has this very cool can design where it's like, it's this Pacific Northwest crane, but in a very like biblically accurate angels vibe with like fractaling wings coming off the side with all these yellow eyes coming out different spots. Mm. Super Mm -hmm. cool. Super cool. I'm really into the vibe. Yes. So good. So, I'm using this vibe uh, from the beer I'm drinking to open a discussion today. I know in the past we've talked about aliens and uh, magic and all the cool, right? All the cool stuff that can sometimes get wrapped up in like fantasy novels and TV shows and all that kind of stuff. But today 
I am curious to talk about what you think the role of mythology had on the Hebrew Bible and what I mean, honestly, just like an overarching conversation about mythology would be fun as well, because uh, even just the the low hanging fruit of pointing out that uh, it seems like uh, archetypes of dragons exist in all sorts of cultures that you wouldn't have thought really were able to share their stories. So like in olden times, right? Did they ever encounter dragons? And is that why we call them myth now? Because they don't, ex- maybe they don't exist now, but they used to or, or anything like mm. that. But in particular, the impact of mythology on the Hebrew Bible, especially through some of the more fantastical stories that happen through like the miracles of the prophets and stuff like that. Okay. Can I tell a personal quip really quick? Please. I remember, I uh, don't remember what year high school it was, but I can remember my teacher and my classroom. And I remember it being consciously the first time someone had introduced me to the idea of anything in the Bible being considered myth or mythical. And specifically, it was about Genesis. And I got defensive about it. And she like explained very literaturely that this is not to say like th- this is not making any indication about whether something did or did not happen it is talking about literary style and i was like oh all right <laughs> okay cool <I'll laughs> and it was just off. like that easy for me to just like make the switch and i think that that's really interesting that like it like <laughs> i think for a lot of people something like myth or seeing the bible as myth or parts of the bible i think people usually fall into like one or two camps, right? And mm-hmm. like to some people, they're like, how do you not see that? And to other people, they're like, they just get defensive anytime someone brings up the M word. So I don't know. I just wanted to share that. But I think your question is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Man, where should we start? Mm. Well, Stephen, did you say you had a quote? Oh, yeah. Thank you for reminding me. So I just, why this is uh, top of my mind right now is I just recently finished reading Miracles by C.S. Lewis, um, in which he makes a a uh, a pretty well reasoned case for why Christians ought to believe in miracles. And there is just kind of like a throwaway banger quote in here, where he says, "The mind which asks for a non miraculous Christianity is a mind in process of relapsing from Christianity into mere religion." So that hits hit it pretty hard. But I just that just caught my eye because I had underlined that. Um, in another discussion he had, and this honestly, it came through a footnote in the book and bear with me. It's a little long, but this is really where I'm feeling inspired for today's episode. So a consideration of the old Testament miracles is beyond the scope of this book and would require many kinds of knowledge, which I do not possess. My present view, which is tentative and liable to any amount of correction would be that just as, on the factual side, a long preparation culminates in God's becoming incarnate as man, so, on the documentary side, the truth first appears in mythical form, and then by a long process of condensing or focusing, finally becomes incarnate as history. This involves the belief that myth, in general, is not merely misunderstood history, or diabolical illusion, nor priestly lying, but, at its best, a real though unfocused gleam of divine truth falling on human imaginations. The Hebrews, 
like other people, had mythology, but as they were the chosen people, so their mythology was the chosen mythology, the mythology chosen by God to be the vehicle of the earliest sacred truths, the first step in that process, which ends in the New Testament where truth has become completely historical and incarnate. Mm. So that hits pretty hard. I really like the way he lays that out. And honestly, um, I feel like a lot of my opinions of C.S. Lewis have been covered by other people's opinions of C.S. Lewis. If that makes it, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And him coming out with ideas of mythology serving us this way was really cool. If I'm honest, like I really like the way he talks about the past and like the mythologies of the Hebrew people eventually becoming true, like in the new Testament or in uh, the incarnation of Jesus of like, it all leads up to that. And they all kind of like bleed truths at the edges. But I think he's doing that thing, Josh, where he's also acknowledging that uh, mythology exists as its own literary style. And, you know, I, I think he's grappling pretty well with the fact that like literal truth or not, there's something to be learned here. And it leads us to Jesus in some way, which is a, which is a pretty, I feel like a lot of evangelicals have like took to that take of like, if you read any story in the old Testament, it will always lead you to Jesus, um, mm -hmm. which is a hermeneutic that's fine. But I also think it does a disservice to our Jewish brothers and sisters who don't think it did that. And they still find meaning in it. Yeah. So that's, that's why I'm framing it as the Hebrew Bible, uh, because to say old Testament implies that it's like outdated and now we have the better one, but that, you know, mythology though. I think it's really interesting that we learn stories or we learn truths through stories. And at earlier ages, we don't necessarily care if those stories are true, but then as something about the enlightenment kind of settles in with us and it's like, we are born into the age of rationality, then all of a sudden it becomes true, like important to us that we have to be able to prove that the ark landed on that mountain, right? Or, you know, or that you could like find the Holy Grail somewhere. You know, that's a really interesting point, actually, that I haven't given much thought to until now. That like most children don't need a story to be rooted in reality for you to like use it for their gain. Mm -hmm. Like you mm -hmm. can use a story to a child to make a point uh, to like reason with them because children don't reason the same way. Like you, you don't need, you don't need to be referencing to them something that happened yesterday in their life. You can use veggie tales or you can use the Bible or you can use any story that they're privy to, to like explain something to them. Yeah. Um, or like rationalize with them. And it, it makes sense. Like they don't need that to be rooted in reality. And mm -hmm. so I, th I think that's a really interesting point with the Bible in that like in some ways we like grow out of that cognitively and then maybe or not return to that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that is partly, I know we're like talking, <laughs> we're trying to talk old Testament, but I think that's part of what is so intriguing to me about Jesus teaching in parables is that in, in some ways it's like ironic <laughs> that he has to teach in parables to adults that should be able to reason. Mm -hmm. Right. But at the same time, their tradition is told through stories. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Like, right. He, let, we, let us not forget that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. I think, uh, to your point about myth, um, this has been kind of my experience with it. I think that, kind of going back to the defensive part, um, mm. because that was kind of like my, that was kind of my reaction at first with like 
trying to tie the Bible to myth, right? Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people have some differing reactions as well to seeing how the Bible is similar or compares to other cultural myths at the time. Like, I'm sure, do you guys know about the Enuma Elish? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, like, I feel like that's a great example with like Genesis and like there being a different creation myth that like mm-hmm. arguably the Bible borrows from and is also like making interplay with. And I feel like, like what's weird is that I think people either just straight up deny it. Like, no, the Bible didn't borrow from anything. And then other people go to the other extreme to say like, we'll see this just disproves the Bible because they're mm-hmm. like buying into the, the other side's argument that like you have to prove or disprove the Bible mm-hmm. versus like the literary cultural reading of these cultures existed at the same time and were making through story arguments in and through and around each other mm-hmm. about what yeah. the true nature of reality and the divine is. And I think that's far more fascinating. Like that's absolutely what I see. I mean, I'm not like, I'm not a biblical scholar and I'm not the most knowledgeable about the other cultures around at the time either. But like that seems to me what's happening. And I don't think in any way that discredits the story a, and I also don't think that that discredits the value we can get out of the biblical story. Mm. Like, I feel like this is also kind of touching on our episode a while ago about what the Bible endorses or does not endorse like that's kind of a moot question if we're talking about mythology or is it like does c.s lewis make a point about mythology arguing for a worldview the mythology quote that i just read you honestly was one of the coolest finds i've ever found in a footnote like he just yeah, kind of say tucked it in to a discussion about like a very short discussion honestly about old testament miracles because uh, he he uses the framework of Jesus's miracles to kind of scaffold the whole book, and you know he he spends a few books working on just like the uh, yeah worldview and philosophy or a few chapters that is worldview and philosophy, and then he spends a few kind of trying to predict what some of the like arguments against him would be, whether that be red herring or not, like. And then in these last two chapters and where this quote came from is uh, he has two final chapters kind of scaffolded around the idea of old creation miracle and new creation miracle. And yeah, th- this one just happens to be tucked in there. But he he does, I mean, f- from the teaser quote I read you, right? Like he does maintain that miracles ought to be considered an orthodox Christian belief. And you you... Like to get rid of miracles in Christianity is problematic to say it in the say it in the tamest way, and honestly, it might not be Christianity if you don't believe in miracles, is what he's saying. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because he, he, you know, he makes an argument for like I, I don't think anyone considers Thomas Jefferson ever to have been a Christian, especially because he famously edited the New Testament to remove every miracle. And just use it as like moral teachings, right? So he uses that example, uh, but basically he says like he couches uh, truly like the the resurrection and the incarnation in events of miracle. And if you don't believe in miracles, then you don't have Jesus as you ought to see him, or a resurrected Jesus as you ought to see him, is what he says. So would he not say that you can view miracles through a mythological lens? Whether or not they happened, it's it's the mythos of the story that's trying to get a point across. 
Yeah. I think what he's saying is that it's different and permissible to treat Old Testament miracles that way. Oh. But not New Testament miracles. Because his whole argument is that, like, throughout the Hebrew Bible, we have examples of, like, truths bleeding out at the edges and these almost mythological stories eventually pointing toward and becoming something something as if historical by being incarnated in Jesus. That's kind of what he's going for. So to your question, I think he, he would say, yeah, read the Old Testament through that lens. But New Testament, you're not allowed to do that. Because if you're allowed to do that with New Testament, then maybe Jesus never rose from the dead. And now we have a problem. Huh. Yeah. I'm, mm, yeah. I'm not sure I like <laughs> his view. I don't think it's consistent. Mm. Emily, what do you think? I think Josh and I have been going for quite a bit. Yeah. Well, so did you know that there are different types of myths? No, question mark. As in like yeah. like cultural versus like something else or something? Yeah. So Okay. So there's there's four types. There's the rational myth, the functional myth, the structural myth, and the psychological myth. Oh. And basically, all these different types of myths have different purposes. So the rational myth, it's a theory that basically shares this idea that myths were created to help explain natural forces or events that have occurred like in the everyday. Mm -hmm. Um, So an example would be creation stories, like creation myths. They explain how humanity, nature, things like that were created and to show like the substance, if any, of why man, people, creation exists. Right. So there's one example. Um, uh, The functional myth, it's a theory that states Myths were used to teach morality or social behavior. So one example I could think of is like why a tribe or a village would um, overthrow uh, another village or conquer a village or whatever the case may be um, to show that you don't need to be afraid to kind of teach you a lesson and Mm. explain why things or why people behave the way they do if there are any social injustices that are occurring a structural maybe like Aesop's fables yes 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 that's a great example and then a structural myth is one that's based on human emotion so looking at like Hercules that's a that's a great example Mm. they show how Hercules did both good and bad things like one of the bad things that he did was he stole a pin from a treasure and one of the good things that he did was I I can't even name one off the top of my head, but there, it just shows the complexity of humanity versus good and bad. And then the psychological myth is one where cultures see and understand the similarities of questions or maybe even wishes or fears that they may share. And so they have these archetypes that can be found cross-culturally. So whether uh, it's like the god of seas, the god of sky or the dragon. Or the, yeah. Or the dragon. Yeah. So there these different myths have a purpose to try to explain things in the world and why they occur and why they're important. And so I think when we look at myths in the Bible, we should look at what type of myth is it and what is its purpose, because that will, I think, point us in a direction to see other cultures and other religions that may have similar myths or stories and to see that they do cross cultural boundaries. Yeah. I really like that as a framework. I had never heard that spelled out Mm -hmm. so clearly. I feel like I've heard those terms before, but I haven't 
grasped them like I feel like I am right now. Thank you, seminary. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Shout out to the people who go through seminary. Yeah. Well, I almost kind of think it would be kind of fun to use, we go back through all those four and see if we can name mm. like Hebrew Bible stories that fit in those yeah. descriptors. I like that. Question for you, Emily. Um, yes. Do you think that any of, like among those four types, is it largely held, or do you, maybe you don't know, uh, if like a myth almost always fits into just one of those or if like they can overlap into multiple because like I could see oh sure yeah I could see like like a rational and a uh the second one whatever the second one was functional yeah functional I could mm-hmm. see those fitting together quite nicely yeah like, I think may- they can maybe it's trying to make sense of the the world around and explain something but it's also like trying to like socially function I I think they definitely can cross into multiple types of myths I think it might even be possible really to have a myth that is fits into all four. I think these are descriptors that are nice to help. I don't want to say compartmentalize, but I think it's a great way to categorize mm-hmm. myths for sure. sure. And yeah. then once you see the categories, you can see the intricacy of them and you can see where they overlap and how they do fit into these multiple categories. But to even just have them separate to begin with, I think helps people break down the story that's being told. Cause I think sometimes they get caught up in this idea that if it's a myth, then it's not true. Cause that's the other definition of a myth <laughs> is a widely held belief, but it's not true. So I think when we take it in the definition of it's a story to help explain something, like we know it's not going to be factual in the sense of historically it happened exactly this way. The purpose of what it does is to show and explain something. And here's how it explains it, whether it's functional myth in showing us human behavior or if it's a rational myth and trying to explain how things came to be in the culture of that time, whatever the case may be. I think these categories are perfect. So I think it would yeah. be really cool to see if we can find stories and maybe fit them into one or multiple categories. Yeah. What were the four again? Rational, functional. Rational functional, structural, and psychological. Okay. So rational being kind of the umbrella for uh, like explaining natural phenomenon, right? Yeah. Understanding natural events and forces that occurred in the everyday life. So weather, creation, things like that. Yeah. Are you comfortable with limiting the stories we try to come up with to the Hebrew Bible in particular? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Let's do it. I think that's the, f- the fun extra challenge. Sorry, one more clarification. What would you say is the main difference between rational and structural again? Rational would be things that occur in the everyday, and then structural would be focusing on the human emotion. Yeah. So good and uh, bad. Okay. It's like, sure. Why does, why does the external world do what it do? And then why do humans do what they do? Yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Mm, this is fun. Okay. So rational, obviously you mentioned creation myth already. So just explaining or trying to wrap your head around in a narrative form, like how did this all get here? What happened? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, do you want to just start at the beginning of the Bible? Oh, that would be probably a good way to start, <laughs> unless there's ones that come up that we know right off the top of our head, like creation. But that, again, is at the beginning. Sure. 
I feel like I did a few years ago learn that I had permission to interpret the like the global flood of Noah as myth. Mm-hmm. And mostly for me, I think in a rationalizing maybe type of way of learning that if all the land that you knew to exist was flooded, you would call that a global flood, right? It, it, like we don't necessarily need the entire world to be underwater in order for Noah's experience to be true, even if it was true, right? Of like... I don't know, just just the fact that you can interpret like a localized flood that seems to cover everything you were ever familiar with, that would feel like the kind of the end of the world or a reset, mm-hmm. right? If you wanted to make sense of why the heck did God do that as like a reset to some uh, funky Genesis 6 stuff. Yeah. Yeah, but what type, like if you're going to put the flood into one of those four categories, what would you type it as? Because going back to the point of like myth doesn't necessarily mean it does or did not oh, yeah. happen. Sure. Right? Yeah, I guess I think rational makes sense to me just being like a way to explain the world or the ex- the experience thereof. I think my issue with the, the flood myth when it first came up was like the way that like Ken Ham uses uh, Genesis and the global flood to argue that like, see, you can look in the Grand Canyon and see something something happened Mm. and it's like Mm -hmm. okay all right dude i'm gonna go with team functional okay i don't think it was a story just made to rationalize actual events that happened i think it makes more sense to me to read it as a story that is trying to highlight the function of being wicked and not being wicked that god will save Mm. the not wicked oh yeah that like the wickedness ultimately leads to death, etc. I think that it's making more uh, of like a functional claim like that rather than putting a storyline to events that actually happened. To your point, Stephen, about like I don't think the flood was global, and I honestly maybe I'm going a step further and saying like I doubt that it happened in any like meaningful way close to the text. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's making like a functional mythological argument about where like what good and bad leads to see okay so i am i'm in camp rational and functional but i have a question of (laughs) well yeah why not why does it have to be just exclusive it's our podcast we make the rules yeah it's true right um but i wonder are there other cultures that have flood stories yeah so then i would also put it in camp psychological (laughs) oh well and i think that I think that's a great it, example of uh, the Bible commenting on other myths, too. Yeah, because it crosses cultural boundaries. And if other cultures are trying to understand fears or other questions or even wishes then that are unexplainable, these myths would do that. And so this would be one that I would think of if other cultures have flood stories that may be similar, then I would say it's also psychological. You know, I was just doing some discourse on TikTok the other week about the flood and i feel like so many people use the example of other cultures have flood myths they they use it as like a proof in like two different ways they use it to like either discredit the whole flood narrative or they use it to just justify that the flood must have happened but like that actually it proves neither of those like it could all just be localized floods they're telling stories about (laughs) 
Yes, yeah. it absolutely could have been. And but even like any parallels that indicate any copycatting or like playing on each other, like yeah. that doesn't prove anything either. No. All it proves is the cultures had flood myths. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> true. True. Yeah. So but I, but I hear what you're saying Emily about like it being a, a psychological tie-in as well. I 100% agree with that. I think that's a good point. We just want to say how honored we are that you listen to Ravel. Seriously, there's a lot of great shows out there, and we're grateful to be in your feed. Thank you for helping us on our journey to normalize people asking questions about theology. If you want to support what we're doing, the best way to help is to tell a friend about us. We want to be a resource for people on their faith journeys, whether they're deconstructing, reconstructing, switching churches, deconverting, and everything in between. And if you're able, you can support us for as little as $3 a month on our Patreon. Supporting us helps us cover fees, software, equipment, future ideas, and more. For all of you church finance skeptics out there like me, don't worry, we're keeping an open book for transparency. For our supporters, we've built an online space where we can be together. We know it can be difficult to ask questions about our faith, so we want to make that more accessible, comfortable, and normal. We're using an app called Discord, where you'll get private access. You already know us, and we'd love to get to know you. Thank you to everyone who's already supporting, and thank you to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music, In Full Color. Ravel is a founding podcast of the Highline Media Network. And here's a word from one of our sister shows, No Normal People. Hello, and welcome to No Normal People. This is a show where we prove that the more you get to know the normal people in your life, you discover that there really are no normal people in your life. You know how there's like famous people in the world that are known very well and how they go on podcasts? Yeah. Well, we don't do that. Marketable names and yeah, audience. Buzzwords, and, buzz yeah, names. Social followings. Yeah. And, John yeah. Buzz. And, well, we interview people like your Uncle Terry, who collects model trains. Because he's normal. We'll even interview you, even if you don't have the cool trains that your uncle has. You can email us at nopeoplepod at gmail.com or visit our show page on www.highline.network to sign up to be on the show. And remember, the only normal people you know are the ones you don't know very well. Listen, we know every church nowadays has its own espresso bar. But that didn't stop us. We've partnered with Good Food Award winner Revel Coffee to present a custom Highline blend. This is not your church's undertrained barista's coffee. No, no, no. It's reliable, delicious, brews well with every home method, and honestly, it just smells great. This isn't your stale, burnt-to-a-crisp grocery store brand dark roast that tastes like it comes from the pits of hell. The Highline Blend is properly sourced, roasted to order, and shipped out fresh. Support us by ordering a bag at highline.network shop, or tap the link in the show notes. One thing I thought of in Camp Rational as well was like the escape of the Hebrews from Egypt and like the conquest of the promised land, I guess, mm -hmm. because mm. from what I, from the cursory research of my own that I've done 
to read uh, scholars talking about what they've found as evidence of like an entire Egyptian army being buried in the Red Sea or um, or even just the fact that apparently what two million Hebrews left Egypt at a time. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. That's a huge migration. And so far, it seems like we haven't found any actual evidence that that many people were involved. So like, I think a rationalization of even almost, I want to call it like geopolitics. It's like a geopolitical myth of like, Mm. here are the uh, exiled Hebrews wandering the wilderness kind of having to deal with their own faults and their own follies. But also here's this Canaanite conquest of like a, the myth of an ousted people taking what was theirs, even though it was never really, I don't know, never really theirs in the first place. And we have all these glorious stories of battle with Joshua at the helm. And somehow he stops time long enough for a battle to last an extra few hours to like completely ruin this army. And it's like, uh, this does seem like a way, maybe not rationalize. Oh gosh, I could see that being psychological as well. Of just like like trying to explain, like this is how our people did what we did. Aren't we cool? And or kind functional? Of like, mm-hmm. Yeah, and just kind of like building a national identity of like, well, we are go- God's people. We were liberated from Egypt. We made our way through forty years of wilderness, and we had enough strength at the end of it to conquer this whole land that we're enjoying now. Well, remember, functional myths were also, they were created for social control and mm-hmm. was trying to ensure stability in a society. So that would, that would kind of fit into that, I would say. What would be a modern day example of a functional myth, in your opinion? Oh. Um, that the founding fathers had completely pure motives in doing what they did to establish America. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that establishes a social of... order and a national identity that <laughs> preserves and serves the ongoing of a society <laughs> that they would want to preserve and conserve. I just kind of liked the set, the little little tiny dash of sarcasm in Stephen's voice as he was giving <laughs> that example. <laughs> to pretend that the enslavement of an entire people group did not happen and was seemingly unrelated is just ridiculous. Yeah. Is that fair, Josh? I can't I can't think of a, another one. I was yeah, I think that that is a good example. I was trying to think of another one that like specifically teaches a certain morality or a certain behavior. Boy who cried wolf. Oh, sure. Yeah, we still use that. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, I think that we have a lot of like axiomatic things like that like uh mm-hmm. or even like snitches get stitches. Yeah. Just like really short and sweet stuff that's that's just like culturally understood. That's more of like an idiomatic myth than it is like a a long narrative. Okay. So here's um since we're talking Hebrew Bible and we were starting to talk about like Exodus and Moses, what about the burning bush? Oh. Cause as far as I know, there are no other stories cross culturally where a a bush catches fire and starts talking. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but again, that doesn't prove anything. No, but I <laughs> it would just say means I, it's unique. I wouldn't. So I wouldn't categorize it as a psychological one. Then. Oh, ooh, that's a good point. Okay, I was gonna say structural because we see a lot of 
internal conflict in the Moses story, like ah. between his own good and evil. And, you know, I've never actually heard anyone talk about this, but I think that the burning bush vignette of God and Moses, it feels like like a transformative point where arguably God is introducing Moses to the idea of him not being inherently sinful. Mm. Like he is allowed to stand on holy ground and not be smited down. Like that. Yeah. So I would argue it is structural. I, if we're going to type it. I join you in that. <laughs> what about the Tower of Babel? Ooh. Because I don't think the point of the story is to teach children, so don't go build towers to heaven. God will make you speak yeah. another language, and I'll never get to talk to you again. It's more about how like pride and hubris will lead to your your own confusion and your own downfall. Yeah. Yeah, Josh, it was it was less about like let's build the tallest tower ever. It was more about let's let's try and equate ourselves with God, right? So it's kind of a nice pairing of functional and structural. This is a really interesting way to do this. I don't know if we have time to do this for every story. So if I may, I might fight fast forward us to a few stories um that I guess um, is, it's kind of leading me to the question of like whether we're allowed to treat angels and demons as mythological okay, as a category. Sure. But even things like David and Goliath, right? Like you, you hear about like this, uh, this kid taking down a giant and many interpreters interpret giant as giant, right? Like they're saying like eight mm -hmm. or nine feet tall. And it's like, that can be a difficult thing to try and square scientifically with what we know now or even what we've been able to find archaeologically, right? So what do you think those myths particularly serve? Hmm. Especially with some some form of like supernatural bodies through giants or whatever, kind of tying back to a Genesis 6, like Nephilim storyline, but angels and demons in general, right? Like, I know we've done an episode about that, but honestly, it was almost 100 episodes ago, so we... <laughs> I'm interested in at least resurrecting the con the concept a little bit just because I I feel like sitting with the idea of myth even uh enjoying like pop culture like Marvel movies right is like mm -hmm. a lot of these movies are beginning to put actors in roles of like classic myths mm. especially I think of like the whole scene in the latest Thor like when they're in the big council of the gods and like Almost every god is represented that you've heard of in like classical myth, and especially ones that haven't really like overlapped. It's just like, oh, Marvel is just assuming that yes, they do all exist, and yes, they do all party at one specific place in the universe from time to time. But like that seems to be a through line in a lot of myths. It's like spiritual beings, angels, demons, mm -hmm. and those kind of things. And I don't, I, I just wonder what that serves of like that sense of a spiritual realm. Yeah, forces that we can't see or forces beyond our understanding. I think to go back to C.S. Lewis's point, I think that in a lot of ways it makes it easier to talk about. Yeah. Like it, it puts a tangible narrative on some things that are just really hard to understand, like whether it's about us individually or culturally or historically. Hmm. I think it's like what, what I see it doing is wrestling with humanity through story. And on, I think like my personal opinion is like, I think some of the things could have been based on true events and in a similar way to the way that modern film is often based off of 
true stories, but it's not it it's not a documentary. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not the exact way it happened, even if it's more or less inspired. <laughs> wink, wink. I think your question about like what does it accomplish is really interesting because in some ways that feels reminiscent to me of like Bible study methods that like look for the application. Like what's the <laughs> yeah. point? Like how do we apply this? You know? And like I'm not to say that like that's always bad, but I think that sometimes there's not one. Right. And I think sometimes we read that in. But also, hot take, I don't think that that's usually bad. Like if reading the Bible and you trying to gain a point in there that's good and like going back to our last episode, if it like reduces harm or betters your life or gives you like a better sense of good and evil, I don't think that's bad necessarily. <laughs> like it may not be the best hermeneutic, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm kind of rambling here. Yeah. I would also add that it nudges us to enter the realm of imagination. And I think that last quote that you shared with us, Stephen, really enforces that idea because we, I know as modern readers, it can be easy to want to rationalize and have a solution or an answer so it's concrete and it makes sense because we are rational beings, but we are also imaginative people. Like that's why that's why we have stories. Not only to explain something, mm. but to creatively explain something. And if we get rid of the idea of imagination, then the story isn't a story. It's a manual. It's just these steps that mm. explain. And we're not meant to be solely people who just follow steps and manuals. We are a people who share stories. Like the entire creation of the Hebrew Bible was because people passed down stories. They didn't just pass down manuals. <laughs> like, we need to be imaginative. And even as 21st century readers, whether you're reading the Bible or reading other stories or sharing stories verbally, it's this idea of having imagination and being creative and dynamic in your thinking and not always wanting to rationalize or make sense of but instead to have this creative energy flow and to welcome that energy. Mm. I like that. I can really appreciate that. I think if playing D&D has taught me anything is that a dumb, stupid story we play with math rocks can really have an impact on me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Be really meaningful, <laughs> you know? Well, and I think that I think that that's the key too. Is like the the mythology is usually not experienced on just the individual level, and yeah. I think that that is the power of like these ancient myths permeating our current culture. Like the only reason we know about them is because somebody wrote them down, and then they just kept getting told. And like if that stopped happening, they would not be relevant anymore. And mm-hmm. the reason that they're relevant is because they are in our society, and people are still talking about them in a way that people are not really still talking about Greek mythology as much or some indigenous mythologies. And I think that absolutely we should come to terms with like cultural erasure and like yeah. narrative suppression Colonialism and like, et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah. But yeah, absolutely. But also I don't want to come across and say like, I think that this myth, like the Jewish Christian myths together and separately are 
in any way superior because I don't think that that's what myth is trying to do. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that the, the reason why we should still talk about it is because people still talk about it, I guess. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I think <laughs> I like that the social element of myth is really, really important. Like, I don't find the same value in your D&D myths. I don't experience it. No one talks to me about it. I don't care. And even if we did talk to you about it, you'd be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but like, we love story, right? Like, we love hearing about what's going on in our friends' lives. And totally. like, in some way, that's creating like a, like a small micro mythology. Like, we know the characters that are playing in our friends' lives and like, like these dramas and comedies that happen in everyday life. But like, that's meaningless to the person on the other side of the world. Yeah. But I think that to me, that's like the power of, and like what is still interesting to me about these ancient myths is that like, not only did I grow up with them, but people still talk about them and use them for inspiration. And there's a discourse. And I think we would be missing out if we, if I didn't keep talking about them, I guess. Mm. Am I, am I just, (laughs) am I just still interested in the Bible because I have FOMO? Whoa. Yes. <laughs> Everyone else is talking about this. I should. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> you might be a victim of FOMO here, Josh. That's true. Right. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> um, one thought I did have in regards to angels and demons. I love the way you guys talked about, like, they almost do serve as a way of, like, you know, however you categorize them inside these these four that Emily laid out like they do kind of serve as big ideals because like very often uh, through myth and, it, and in particular like an allegory is like the character will just be named like envy <laughs> mm. you, you know and that just gets to represent that emotion and that feeling that we all experience from time to time. Um, but that character just gets to like be the total embodiment of that thing to show us either how ugly that vice is or how beautiful that virtue is. And maybe angels and demons serve the same thing of like, they just, they, they get to be the myth in the story of this is the embodiment of like good with a capital G or evil. Mm, yeah. I do sometimes wonder, though, if that is almost kind of problematic in the sense of, like, we have the, like, I think of the book by Steven Pinker, Better Angels of Our Nature, and, well, I know he is atheist, and he's essentially saying, like, uh, here's a rationalistic, atheistic, really, take on why humans act good instead of evil all the time, because a lot of Christianity is guilty of saying pretty much if we didn't have morality, then every human would just be like the world's worst rapist and just philanderer and just ruining the world. Right. I think some Christians say that on social media of like, if I didn't have the Bible, I'd be so messed up. It's like, you get how that doesn't really sound great still. Right. (laughs) Um, But so what I do wonder and what I do worry is that a modern belief in angels or demons especially demons, and when the belief is there that uh, humans can be periodically possessed by said demons, I sometimes worry that that can come across as like a scapegoating of 
the amount of evil a human can perform. And if we were just to say, well, like, well, a demon made me do that. It almost feels like we're trying to get out of the responsibility of acting like a terrible person. I guess like Mm. what I feel is like maybe a way too easy example is like many people have tried to do theology around the fact that Adolf Hitler may have been possessed by multiple demons and that's why he did what he did. And I can appreciate the sentiment, but at the same time, I worry that that almost lets him off the hook. And it definitely does not acknowledge that he was, in fact, possessed by a theology. Right. Oh, mm. And instead mm-hmm. is has to be this like more magical flavor of like a new personality shows up through a spiritual form that we can't see. I do think it's an interesting label because it's obviously like an externalization, but then like paradoxically, <laughs> you like argue that someone has internalized that externalization, which yeah. is really weird. Right. So that's fun. I would argue that this is opinion. I'm not like basing this in scholarship. I would argue that the original thinkers on angels and demons, like in the mythology would not have used it as that kind of like fallback to, well, I'm not culpable for my actions. Like I was possessed by a demon. Mm, Sure. Like I would, I would argue that the, they're trying to make a mythology that is much more robust and is actually trying to systematically categorize someone's actions in a way that like current or present words would didn't have words for like for instance they did not have this kind of like literary understanding of myth even though like we now in the modern literature like now with like such a vast collection of cultural myth throughout history that we can find like we now recognize that they kind of fall into like those four ish camps for the most part like at least loosely Mm-hmm. And like, not not to say that we are more intelligent now, but like modern sociology did not exist back in that day. Like you, there was not these kinds of like scientific understandings of the great evil that can be done by humans. Mm. So, so what I see in them creating these, in my view, what I see in them like shaping this narrative around angels and demons and good and evil is definitely that kind of like structural myth in them trying to wrestle with the good and evil that is done by humanity and like trying to put some sort of framework around like, well, that thing that was done was like definitely worse than the lie that I told. Mm. Like that's like, Mm. that's like next level. That's demonic. (laughs) Yeah. But I don't know. I could be wrong about that too. Like there's honestly not a lot in the Bible that like argues for demonic influence or demonic possession like that's mostly new testament it, yeah that's and true. it's only a couple examples and even then those examples are overshadowed by the exorcism and the hope that came from so it's to me i read the emphasis not being on the possession itself but the eradication of the possession and mm. moving forward mm. so i think it kind of depends on what you want to give life to <laughs> hey Whoa. I love the way you said that, Emily. Yes. You're welcome. Yeah, I like that. Well, thanks for a fun exploration, you guys. I was just kind of curious to like poke around the edges of this this concept here, especially with a what feels like a culture that is like we love an MCU movie, whether you say you hate it or not. And some people 
don't actually watch them. But like, <laughs> I I'm a sucker for a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, and every time I go, I'm just struck by like this story is doing stuff, you know. And I really mm-hmm. I really love that even in fiction and in myth, we get to learn real things about the world that both show us how bad it could get, but also how beautiful it really is to be a human on an everyday basis. And I think just those reminders through these stories is beautiful. Do you think the church should engage with modern myth like the MCU more? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think you could use the uh, Doctor Strange movie, The Madness of the Multiverse, to do some real talks around the psychology of like internal family systems and the way that Wanda Maximoff's grief fractured her on an internal level and that her kind of reparenting herself is an act of love in itself and that is like that is true therapeutic therapeutic work that happens in doctors offices every day and i also think uh that the the grappling i guess spoiler alert i guess but uh even the way that um we see jane struggle with cancer as she becomes thor for a time and wields Mjolnir in with love and thunder is like, I don't know, just that grappling with uh, a death sentence kind of in itself with cancer and um, ignoring it for a time. And then uh, realizing that just running away from it doesn't work and doing like grief work before you die is just uh, like, Oh, it's so intense. It's so good. And that's plenty of fodder for a good pastor to pick up on speak about without being that insane church that just does marvel skits have you guys seen those videos or the hamilton <laughs> yes oh yeah just yeah. copyright infringement yeah. out the butt with that are you kidding me <laughs> but they are kind of engaging in the biblical tradition of commenting on other myths yes kind of yes even though they're really bad at yeah. it insane you can Emily, do it I want, tastefully. I want to hear from you. You gave her like a really quick yes to the church should engage more oh. in modern myth. Well, Stephen like nailed it right on the nose. Um, and I will add it again. It enforces and cre- it creates an environment where you can engage in your imagination. I know for me writing sermons, I have always referred to like Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Marvel and DC characters and Star Wars. Like there is there is a whole plethora of imagination that can be utilized in preaching and teaching and discipleship and yeah Stephen just beautifully all wrapped it up in a bow and mailed it out to people so thank you Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you I appreciate that yeah after you said that it, it occurred to me that I think that the MCU is probably the best example of a modern myth yeah that's like actually permeating our culture. I would also add to the list any movie that's been coming out from Pixar in the last few years. The, oh my god. The theology of soul Ooh, is yeah, that's really beautiful. Inside uh, out. Thank you. Yes, inside out. Yes. Pixar is smoking the good stuff apparently cuz they are <laughs> they're on it. Hallelujah. Yeah, but there's something to like creating like that very interconnected universe in a way that's like it feels historical versus like just like a one-off parable but i agree with you those are powerful stories too it really is crazy how mcu is like we all love binging our you know a season of stranger things at a time 
in the MCU, what they've given us is like, yeah, I mean, here's a bunch of three hour episodes. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Wow. Any final thoughts from the two of you before we have Emily uh, give us a blessing, benediction, something like that? Just thank you for bringing up this topic. So good. Oh, thanks. I think more Christians need to think about Christianity's mythical structure, Old and New Testament. It's giving me inspiration for like different studies and just ways of teaching and integrating myth and modern myth into Christian study and biblical interpretation and <laughs> life in general, which is really cool. And as a chronic doubter, it's the myth part of the story that like makes me want to hold on to it. Yeah. Not whether or not it happened. I love that. Well, Emily, would you like to sign us out? Once upon a time, there were three strapping young individuals who decided to explore and engage in a wonderful adventure that is raveling out their faith. Stay tuned to hear more of their adventures. Media Network, artist-owned podcasts by normal people in normal places.